Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto, is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com. That's Consensus with a U, and you can save $300 if you use promo code TOKEN300. On today's episode, we chat with David Fauchier from Cambriel Capital to discuss popular misconceptions around generalized mining, the road ahead for DeFi, and how the money behind the money thinks about investments in crypto funds. Hey, David. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Hey, Tina. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And for our listeners who don't already know you or what you're up to, can you give a little background of your story leading up to launching Cambriel Capital? Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is David Fauchier. I'm the, the CIO of a, an investment advisory firm based in London called Cambriel Capital. Um, what we're doing now is, is a really a, sort of a fund of funds strategy uh, for crypto. And so for people who aren't too familiar with uh, what that means, basically our job is to to analyze and select other crypto funds. And the, the story leading up to it has sort of been a, a coming together of a lot of different threads in my own life, um, as, as you often get in crypto. I have been, I used to work in technology, was a product manager, data infrastructure. I worked in fintech, could always sort of uh, worked in that space, um, cut my teeth at a mobile payments company in London called Yo-Yo Wallet, uh, straight out of uni. And somebody sent me the, the Bitcoin white paper at roughly the same time. And I'd done a, I'd done a history degree at university during the, the great financial crash. And so I'd gotten very interested in economic history and, and economic cycles and then to sort of the Austrian economics uh, through that. And so there was sort of a sort of latent interest in financial markets. And I grew up in a, a financial family. So I'd always sort of been, been hearing about this kind of thing and had done the, the economic history side of things. And now I was working in fintech. And as part of that, we were really looking specifically at the types of payments data that you would be able to collect if you were to uh, intermediate a transaction and the importance of that data layer. And so lots of things sort of came together in reading the the Bitcoin white paper, and it just felt like a a very interesting and above all a very elegant uh, protocol or, or technical infrastructure that just allowed you to do something that was fundamentally novel. And so I spent the next couple of years really struggling with, you know, how does this space evolve? What does it look like? Is it just Bitcoin? Is it a bunch of different crypto networks all sitting alongside each other? And you know, during the period, I think. 2013, 14, 15, uh, started getting a little bit more disillusioned with the space because from my perspective as an outsider, I was seeing a lot of sort of derivative products. So the, the you know, we were talking about colored coins and nothing really went anywhere there. Side chains, again, not much happened. And the only successful protocols seemed to be, you know, like Litecoin and Dogecoin and, and things that had really taken Bitcoin and just tweaked a few parameters and and just rebranded it. And so I, I got a little bit frustrated with the space because it seemed to me that fundamentally what the Bitcoin white paper had done was introduce a new type of coordination mechanism where people who didn't know or trust each other could sort of come together to produce work and get paid for it in a way that was trustless. And that was sort of the really interesting thing for me. And so sort of stepped back a little bit from the space and, and kept an eye on it, thinking that it would be a uh, you know, 10, 20, 30-year cycle, which I, I think is right, and saying at some point this is going to be interesting and, and it'll be the right time to move uh, full-time into it. And that opportunity really came up about a year and a half ago when um, started looking. I'd been speaking to a couple crypto funds for a few years, but more and more of them were emerging. I was starting to think about what to do with my own capital. Um, that was in crypto at the time, 
uh, like anyone else, you know, you go through 2017 and at some point you need to start really paying attention um, to this. And so started to sort of noodle on what a fund of funds might look like and whether that would be a good idea. And the central sort of thesis there was that I had seen the opportunity set kind of shift over the last few years and was pretty certain that it would continue to shift. And secondly, that I'd met a bunch of hedge fund managers um, throughout my sort of adult life and had a good understanding for what a world-class hedge fund manager looked like. And when I was meeting with crypto funds, there was sort of this disconnect in terms of sophistication between what they were doing and what I knew was possible. And so when we launched this full time, um, the idea was really that there's going to be a convergence in terms of the quality of managers and that there'd be a convergence in terms of the types of strategies that they were pursuing. And early 2017, it was really a bunch of you know, a small number of uh, open-ended hedge fund vehicles running a long-only, pretty unsophisticated buy-and-hold strategy. And the sort of bet that we took was that that would massively grow and we would see all sorts of of strategies emerge in the space run by more and more interesting managers. And that's sort of, I think, been from the capital allocator's perspective has been the story of 2018. Wow, that's such a rich history. I hadn't realized that you, when you say you'd studied history, is like quite literally the history of you know financial boom and bust cycles, and had actually um, read and really bought into um, the Austrian school of thought, especially because I, I mean I think Keynes was even uh, based in London <laughs> um, uh, back in the day. As was Adam Smith. He was uh, well, he was um, Scottish, and I studied in Edinburgh, and so <laughs> a lot of the like founding fathers of of economics were, were British, at least. And I studied a lot of Russian history and Chinese history and Japanese history. And Amazing. through these like massive political um, sort of movements and really did some extraordinary sort of experimentation with economic models. And so it's really geeky, but but very interesting, I think. There's, there's a couple of books I could recommend. And incredibly useful for the space, certainly. And, and so we fast forward a little bit now, um, now that you're, you know, you have a fund of funds that you've set up. What are you actually looking for when you're deploying capital into funds? What does a world class hedge fund manager mean to you? What are the types of funds you're looking to work with? So, uh, at the moment, we are only focused in our research on what's known as a market neutral fund, which is to say a fund that uh, is making investments in such a way that whether the market goes up or goes down, they still uh, ideally make money. And so they are they make money independently of market moves. And the, the sort of, you know, uh, easy example of this is an arbitrage fund where, you know, Bitcoin against US dollar is trading on two different exchanges and it's high on one and low on the other. And so you could buy low and sell high and just recycle your capital um, again and again and again and just do that trade. And that's sort of what I would call a trivial arbitrage opportunity. Um, But there's a bunch of different strategies um, that, number one, is just interesting, um, I think, intellectually in terms of, you know, this is a history that we've seen repeat itself over time. Every time we have a new asset class that gets financialized, um, you basically have this liquid market that exists for a particular asset and it turns out that the markets are typically very inefficient. And the reason they're inefficient is, is actually efficient markets require efficient market participants. And so if you think of you know, an index um, in equities, uh, what you're basically doing is you're buying a market cap weighted basket of different um, stocks on the S&P 500 index, for example. What you're doing there is you're making this implicit assumption that the market is efficiently priced. And so the the companies in the market uh, index are balanced according to their value, their true value. And I think in crypto, this is not true. We have an enormous amount of capital misallocation because we have a lot of sort of retail money and speculative money that's not really done the work to properly value these assets. And so you have, you know, top 10 crypto market caps that are sometimes filled with junk. And there's this implicit assumption that markets are basically just efficient. And what's interesting in crypto, as with every other asset class that has emerged, 
is that in fact it takes a lot of uh, quote unquote work to make a market efficient. And a lot of what these sort of arbitrage funds are doing is actually making these markets efficient, uh, making price discovery efficient. And so what's interesting, I think, about the the managers that we're looking at is that they're not just uh, pursuing uh, what may be a, a profitable strategy, but by the nature of what they're doing, and this is especially true in DeFi, by the nature of what they're doing, they're actually making the markets more efficient and more robust. And so maybe to answer your, your question more directly, um, there's roughly kind of four or five things that we're looking for in a manager. Um, the first and most important is is really total integrity and, and a deep sense of fiduciary responsibility. And in the absence of long track records, you have to bias your analysis of a manager towards the qualitative aspects because there's really not much else to go on. And you compound that by then also saying or observing that crypto markets are very fast moving. And if they're fast moving, you really need to uh, rely on the manager's reactiveness and their ability to sort of understand where things are moving to and adapt with it. And again, that's very hard to put quantitative numbers around. So again, your analysis goes back to being qualitative. And then finally, because of the boom and bust that we've had in this space, it's attracted a lot of uh, cowboys uh, and, and kind of clowns into the space. And so you have a lot of people that are, uh, I think, less than ethical in how they're managing capital. And so a big part of sort of the first step of what we do is really trying to understand a manager's character, temperament, um, and sense of fiduciary responsibility. And so that's sort of the first filter. And then the next thing that we're looking for is uh, extreme thoughtfulness and somebody who's very good at thinking independently. So not necessarily uh, against the crowd, um, but a non-consensus, but sometimes consensus um, which is to say that they're independent. And so their mind is moving and their investment thesis is moving independently of what other people are thinking. And then thirdly, we're, we're really, and this, I guess, is the core of what we do, looking for genuine world-class fluency in whatever strategy a manager might be pursuing. And so, you know, if you are investing, if you're trying to put together a portfolio of the very best uh, smart contract platforms, great, go do that and go be the best at it and get the best deal flow in the world and understand the problems better than anyone else. And if you're going to go and run a you know, market neutral uh, futures arbitrage strategy, then go do that, but really go focus on that and, and focus on being the best in the world at that particular thing and building out your edge with depth. Um, and so we have sort of the luxury of being able to talk to as many funds as we like all day long uh, within reason. And so we've spoken to upwards of 100 funds. And what that allows us to do is really start to see repeat patterns emerge. So you take a bucket of uh, you know, 10 different funds that are all doing roughly the same thing. And when you speak to each of them sort of back to back within a week's period, you start to see trends. You start to see where people are converging in their thinking and where one manager may actually be diverging and thinking of something in a way that other people aren't. And so we're really looking for that uh, as a source of edge. And then I guess, uh, finally, we're, we're really looking for alignment um, with the LPs and a fair fee structure. Um, I think that we've seen some pretty egregious fee structures uh, be proposed and, and run. And ultimately, this is sort of not a way to build a, a business in the long run um, and ends up biting you in the ass. And we don't want to really be in the fund when that happens. So one of the big things that we look for is, is the, the alignment. How much skin in the game does the manager have? And, you know, are they personally invested? And does their fee structure make sense for what they're trying to do? Wow, that's an incredibly thoughtful list. I guess one part that I wanted to, to ask about is if, on the one hand, if you are the money behind the money, it makes sense to want each fund to be incredibly specialized and have one vertical really nailed and be world-class at just one thing. But I think on the actual fund side that you're deploying into, it seems it's probably in their best interest to be, especially because we are similar to an emerging market, um, it certainly is an emerging asset class for them to be a little bit more flexible um, or yeah. not thinking, you know, incredibly focused in, in one place. So how, how would a fund reconcile that? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So we spend a ton of time actually talking to people who, 
maybe have been, you know, running PropCap, uh, their own capital or friends and family, and are now sort of starting to think about whether they might put a fund together. And this is one of the things I always bring up because, you know, we get the call and the first thing I say is, guys, we are not a typical LP. This is why. And and you just basically pinpointed the reason why. Um, so the short term answer is, yes, you maybe don't want to be so specialized. The longer term answer is that if you're going to do everything, then you're sort of, you know, nobody can be the best in the world at everything. And so you're basically making a conscious decision to be mediocre at everything rather than the best at one thing. And there's this continuum between those two things. And so, yes, you shouldn't be too focused on one thing, because if that strategy no longer exists six six months from now, your enterprise is gone. At the same time, if you're trying to spread yourself too thinly, you're just going to end up looking at a lot of different things in a very shallow manner. And so I think that it's important for managers to, to be flexible in their thinking and to be able to kind of rethink their investment theses and strategies and be adding to those over time. But it's a balance between that and also being focused enough that you have an edge over other people. You're thinking of trades or you're getting deal flow that other people are not getting. Because otherwise, in the long term, you know, three, five years out, you're just going to get eaten by someone that's better at you than that. Absolutely. I, I find myself aligning with that thesis. I think you want to be specialized and mitigate the extreme so that when the dust settles, you allow yourself the ability to pivot or tweak how you're thinking about the space, but you aren't staying investing in everything for, you know, all of eternity. And, and of course, because that waters down the actual quality of your investments and you are, like you said, unable to know everything about the space at one time. It, it's really interesting in the crypto space, we have this assumption where, you know, if you're in crypto, you must also be an expert on staking and security and on the technological layer, on the UX layer. Whereas, you know, if, if you're working in a web 2.0 type of space, you know, no one is expecting a security engineer at Instagram to also know front end for the product. But for some reason, we think those laws or rules fly out the window in Web3. And I don't think that's the case. So this actually, this happened, there's precedent for this in VC, in that the very earliest VCs were typically from engineering backgrounds. Like they were really close to the metal. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's interesting to see that repeated in crypto. And I think it's somewhat validated in the sense that there's still a lot of technical risk here. And so you Absolutely. can't invest without looking at that. Absolutely. Um, it, you've, you've also had previous experience as a product leader and angel investor in Europe, and you guys are based in London. And I'm curious, what is the Europe scene like versus the US crypto scene? So the way to think I think the way to think of the U.S. for of Europe for non-Europeans is sort of like thinking of it as as a mini U.S. Um, it's very fragmented, and between each country, the ecosystems look very different. But at the same time, everybody in each of these countries is very happy to jump on a train or a plane and just go to a meeting. And so I'll fly to Berlin for a meeting, and I'll be there at 10 a.m. having left in the morning, and I'll come back maybe in the afternoon. I'll go to Paris, um, and that's you know three hours door to door. It's very sort of easy. You just jump on a train and you go somewhere. And so the first thing is that I think it's very very fragmented. So if you look at Berlin, there's a really strong engineering community there, and it's sort of a hub for like badass decentralized projects. Is kind of how I think about it. Um, there's some really cool down to earth engineers working on very interesting, pretty fundamental technology over there. If you go to somewhere like London, that's sort of where the money is. And you know, we, we call London kind of the capital of capital. Um, there's a lot of money here. It has been flowing out a little bit because of Brexit. Um, in terms of engineering, it's pretty limited. There are a lot of sort of picks and shovel businesses that are built here. So you can imagine you know, uh, a US exchange is gonna set up a, a European headquarter they're probably going to come to London. You're a liquidity provider, you come to London. You're a fund, you probably come to London. But if you are a project, you'll probably go to Berlin. And then Paris sort of has its own scene, and that's relatively engineering heavy. And then uh, there's sort of a bunch of different people scattered over the rest of Europe. Um, I can't really speak to that as I haven't spent too much time there. That makes sense. I, there is, it's really interesting, even within the US as well, 
you see incredible fragmentation. I think arguably San Francisco is way more geared towards the Ethereum community versus New York, where you see more of the community tailored towards Bitcoin. And so there is, even within nations, um, I don't think there's this assumed homogeneity that people people think exists. Um, I wanted to talk about a post you'd made uh, back in November that I really enjoyed. Um, it was called uh, Generalized Mining, the LP's yeah. Perspective. And we'll add a link to it for our listeners who want to check it out after the episode. Um, you walked through what generalized mining is, how you view the Nakamoto, Nak, uh, the Nakamoto consensus models versus proof of stake models and strategies that VCs can use to gain a competitive edge. Um, well, one, if you want to distill the, the main points, and then two, since publishing, what do you think has changed and what do you think has stayed the same? Great question. Um, I want to start, I don't want to miss this out, so I'm going to start with that by saying sort of a dis- as a disclaimer that um, the post we wrote, we're very happy with it, but it's there's, there's some sort of independent thinking on our side, but the majority of it has really been the synthesis of ideas from some fantastic funds in the space. Um, and just to list a couple of those out uh, that we learned a lot from. Um, the guys at CoinFund, at Bison Trails, um, at Figment and uh, Figment Networks, and then uh, a newer fund uh, called Relay Zero, uh, which I think is out in SF by a guy called Lawson Baker, who's got a fantastic Twitter. Um, so we've really learned a lot from these guys. Um, I think stealing from uh, CoinFund, I, I, we couldn't agree more with that sort of view of generalized mining. We, we look at generalized mining very sort of abstractly as engaging with crypto networks in some way in order to make money. And you can look at this sort of continuum where on the one side, you've got like Nakamoto consensus proof of work. So basically like Bitcoin mining. And that's just like the application of uh, computing power to a network for, for fees. And then you can sort of keep moving to the right and you get from the proof of work networks into proof of stake. And that gets you to staking and delegated proof of stake and that looks a lot like, you know, in our mind, a lot like Wells Fargo for crypto. And so maybe that's going to be Coinbase, maybe it's going to be Fidelity, maybe it's going to be someone new, but fundamentally that business model looks a lot like a savings account. And so then you can keep moving and start to think about new or more interesting ways of engaging with crypto networks. And you get to, you know, running a uh, lightning node or uh, front running steam bots or providing liquidity on zero X and market making, or you know, uh, being a keeper on the maker network. Um, all of these different activities that are actually necessary in in mostly DeFi protocols in order to keep the system um, stable. And so, if we think of uh, Maker, for example, like you actually need keepers there in order to monitor the collateralization of the system and to liquidate uh, under-collateralized contracts. You also need keepers to sit there and basically arbitrage um, the the price of DAI. So when it drops below a certain threshold or above a certain threshold to actually uh, basically be be sitting on the other side of that and betting that it's going to trend back towards one. And that allows you to keep the peg. The peg isn't there naturally. The peg is there because there are people who are standing behind that and, and trading it. And so... It's, it's interesting because I think generalized mining, I, I, so the, the, the sort of conclusion that we had out of the, coming out of the piece was that you can basically break it out into these three things. And so the first one is, is really your proof of work mining. And for as long as the consensus mechanisms are requiring one particular type of computation, um, so, you know, uh, go find a SHA-256 hash. For as long as that is the case, you will be able to optimize chips to um, perform that work. And the nature of chip production is that it's very high fixed cost to develop the chip, but then printing them out is very low cost. And so that means that we have seen and will continue to see this progression from basically CPUs to GPUs to ASICs. And basically what you're doing there is the type and amount of uh, computations that the chips are being required to run is being restricted again and again and again. And as you restrict the types of computations you need to run, you can become more efficient at the chip level at performing that computation. 
And so an ASIC is basically a CPU that only runs one particular computation. And so you can do away with a bunch of, you know, like the registry layer on the chip and a bunch of kind of compute that needs to be done, which slows the chip down. And so what we'll see in proof of work mining, I think, is a movement towards ASICs. And because of the economics of chip production, that will concentrate chip production into the hands of a few players. And so we will basically see the same chips uh, being produced by the same groups who have achieved scale being sold to all the miners. And then the miners are basically just going to plug those chips in, switch the electricity on. And it'll be binary, like electricity on, you're mining, off, you're not. And so the next kind of layer of uh, competition there is how cheap is your electricity? And how quickly can you get the newest chips? And so that starts to look more like a game that can be won by the big infrastructure players. So the kinds of people that are used to going in and buying up like a big chunk of land, signing a deal with the local government authority to buy you know, cheap electricity, and then just running a facility. And it's sort of a private equity type thing. It's not a crypto fund thing. And so on the, the pure hardware mining, we're really looking at big infrastructure players to step in and, and understand that. Um, on the proof of stake side, like I was saying, it, it sort of just looks like a bank account to us. Like the only leverage you can get is if people are delegating their stake to you, they're going to delegate to you, you know, assuming it's it's uh, custodial, they're going to delegate to you because they think you're the safest and they're going to earn an interest rate on that. And so you can take a, a, a small sliver of that. And so that's really going to, I think the returns and, and the amount of assets under management, if you will, is really going to accrue to some big players that look like what Fidelity looks like to institutional investors today or what JP Morgan or Wells Fargo looks like to uh, standard American looking for a savings account. And then, so that really leaves you with this third bucket, which is all the other stuff that you can do that's actually, I think, much more interesting and starts to look a lot more like quant strategies. And so what's interesting there is it requires kind of a quanty type mindset to really think about investment opportunities and strategies and what you could do. At the same time, it requires you to, to have this sort of what we call an intimate understanding of the protocol and, and all of the kind of game theory that happens between the different network participants. And the mixture between those two things, I think, is, is absolutely fascinating. And this was one of the most kind of fun rabbit holes we got to dive down um, was generalized mining and the this, this specific aspect to it. And I think a lot of the, the opportunity for people actually sits in that third bucket. And so that's really what we identified in the piece. Um, absolutely. And I guess if you were going to illuminate the biggest changes between when that was published back in November and until now, um, what would be, I think, the, the most drastic of the two? Or is there something that you guys have written that you don't necessarily believe is true anymore mm -hmm. because of things have changed? We've seen, you know, Ethereum 2.0 is, um, you know, still about to launch. We've seen differences um, with uh uh, with ways like different uh, custody solutions are approaching staking. I'm curious to see if there's anything that that has changed since you guys have written it. It's, I wish I had a better answer for you, but we've been so heads down on on work that really we, we, the, writing the piece was sort of the culmination of the research for us. And, and we flicked over to, to doing uh, really a deep dive on the different market neutral strategies. Mm. And uh, sort of shout out to Alex on our team, who's going to be running a, uh, a DeFi traders meetup in New York, um, I think on the 15th of May. Um, and so that, that sort of bring together Hummingbird and, and a couple of people who have been really focused on what you can do with on-chain uh, DeFi trading, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that'll be sort of the, uh, he's kind of knees deep in research on that at the moment. And I, th I think we'll have a better answer. And if anyone's in New York, they should totally head over. But I think the piece was sufficiently vague and, and long-term focused that I don't think anything has happened that I know of that's really invalidated one of our theses. Got it. Um, I, I, I'd say similar. Um, there was one line I liked taking this to a more macro view. 
uh, we yeah. say it's a matter of some debate in our team as to whether there's an opportunity for VCs to add value by actively provisioning and nurturing their networks. One argument is that the ability to do so will become a competitive edge for VCs trying to get into the most competitive deals. And when I read this, I remember thinking, well, isn't this expected of VCs? that they would be participating and trying to bring infrastructure to the projects that they're investing in. I guess, why do we view it as being a competitive edge and not the standard? Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Um, yeah. We've had spent a lot of time on this. So, okay. There's a lot of crypto funds and more and more who are saying, yeah, we need to do staking. Um, that's not really what I mean here, uh, in terms of participation. Um, if you look at how crypto investors in general have approached this angle, you can sort of break it out, I think, into three. There are sort of the VC guys that have looked at uh, staking, basically, and, and people generally just reduce generalized mining to staking, which I think is the least interesting part of it. They look at staking and they're like, well, we're holding all these assets, so we should probably stake them and, and we'll get a little yield on them. Um, and that's sort of... A VC saying, you know, we're buying and holding these assets, it's our fiduciary responsibility, quote unquote, to, uh, to you know, juice some extra yield out of this if we can. And then you've got, you know, guys from more the, the kind of hedge fund side saying, well, we can make, you know, you know, we can make some yield here and it's basically a yield product for us and we don't really care about the underlying asset because we can hedge it out. And then you've got this sort of, I don't know how better to describe them than just very much kind of crypto native investors. And I think um, the guys at Relay Zero are really, um, and, and Figment, and uh, really, actually, really, those two have been sort of at the forefront of this of saying, let's start from ground zero and think about how we can capture value um, in a way that is crypto native that's on chain and can't really be done otherwise. So how do you capture value at layer two when there's no token and there's no company to invest in? The only way to do that is actually to actively participate. And I think what we're seeing is an emergence of what we call kind of generalized mining funds, which from the ground up are built in terms of their structure and their team to be participating in networks from day one. And so the idea here is identify a network pre-launch that you think is very interesting. Take probably a small stake in that. Help the founders you know, work through the token economic design and be there mining on day one and providing whatever that service is that needs to be provisioned on the network from day one when nobody else is doing it. And the idea is basically, can I earn tokens for the first three or six months of a network's existence? at a heavily discounted rate because I'm basically the only person mining on that network versus what tokens have been sold out in the past. And in doing so, can I bring down my cost of ownership? And at the same time, I'm provisioning that, that service on the network and basically bootstrapping the network, or at least the supply side of the network. And I think what, what we're talking about in that piece is a much, much deeper level of engagement between early stage crypto networks and VCs than what your traditional kind of like big crypto fund is doing by saying, oh, we're going to spin up another entity and that entity is just going to do some staking. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great differentiator. Most people hear generalized mining and think staking. And this is taking yeah. it several layers deeper. And I think also another part they're not considering is timing as well. And I think that's a good, there's like a temporal side to this as well as like getting in early and making sure that um, the cost of ownership in the piece that you're provisioning actually goes down and you're able to be more helpful um, at, the, at that level. That makes sense to me. Um, I want to circle back to the DeFi conversation. You guys have been spending um, increasing amount of time there. And I was curious, what are the major problems outside of UX, which is the common complaint, I guess, for all crypto projects, but especially DeFi? Um, what are major problems outside of UX that you think are hindering DeFi adoption today? DeFi is, it's, it's really the intersection, and this sounds really obvious, but it's really the intersection between engineering and finance. And at the moment, we have a bunch of engineering guys that are building financial applications 
but they have you know an even less sophisticated understanding of the instruments that they're building than I do and I never worked in that space like uh, you should be way way more understanding of that space than for example I am and I'm just like your example of an average joe I think that we're lacking in understanding of how financial markets work um to a certain extent and that's basically causing you know you look at some of these products and you know why would i go and lock up some capital in this particular product in order to do something there's no concept of a funding rate um there's no real understanding of you know how cost of capital feeds into some of these um these trade-offs um it, it just seems sort of very basic in terms of if you're going to you know build a protocol for debt issuance or if you're going to build a protocol for um you know, a decentralized exchange, then you really, really deeply need to understand how debt issuance works and how exchanges work. And there's a lot to be learned from the history of how these two products have been built in traditional markets that could be applied here, which I think isn't. And so we had people who built DEXs and then were surprised that people were front running. And no wonder that's the case. Um, th- these are sort of well understood and and learnt lessons from traditional markets and i think we could we could do with more finance people in defi and so yes ux is a big problem but ultimately if the if the use case that's you know uh, being made possible is valuable enough people will will figure it out and it's a very tractable problem ux i think what we need more of is you know how do we equalize interest rates across different DeFi products? How do we have this connective tissue across what is today a bunch of different DeFi islands um, and ensure sort of a larger, well-functioning network? And so I think liquidity and, and pricing efficiency are really boring, but actually fundamental to the operation of networks. And we don't have them today in DeFi. And we, we need them. Absolutely agree with that perspective. And it's a great divergence from the usual UX argument you're here. And I, I completely agree. I think the important thing is having more innovative financial thinkers. We don't want to recreate the system we already have in place, right? Um, and just make it digitized. Um, at least that's my view. And I think another part to it is, I, I and I, it's interesting that me personally, I am short-term, I am short-term bearish on DeFi, long-term bullish. And the reason is I think that before DeFi can really exist or reach its fullest potential, we need a good store of value for it. And I don't think it's possible. I think one big part of it is trust. And if you are seeing price fluctuations in the assets you're trying to um, you know, move across these different financial instruments, it's going to be uh, tough to rely on them or, or to even trust them. And so I, I think what we were hoping a lot of us were hoping was that MakerDAO was probably a, one of these major solutions, but we've recently seen DAI experiencing some difficulty in maintaining stability for its price. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. Like, how should we be thinking about DAI's price stability? Is that shaking your confidence at all with where DeFi is headed? Or, or what are your thoughts on MakerDAO in general? The problem with DAI is that the the, the stability fee is... is it's not set by the market. It's it's sort of, you know, people come together and vote and it just gets pushed up and up and um, or down, but it's very sort of a shop and it reminds me more of central bank policy than a market mechanism. And so I think it's going to be a lot less smooth. Um, that being said, let's not forget that over 2018, we saw the price of the collateral behind DAI collapse more than 90%. We saw price swings of more than 20% intraday. And we never had anything. We never sort of had the system be under collateralized. I think that's kind of extraordinary that that happened. We are unlikely to see such sharp market moves as we did in 2018. And it survived. And I think the, the thing to bear in mind with Maker is, like all of these protocols, it's a work in progress. And so they're continually adding new features. Um, we're moving towards multi-collateral die. The, the die savings rate is coming out. So it's imperfect. I don't know. I don't know how wh- whether you know. Th- 
The issue with DAI is that there's no sort of natural short-term closed loop for an arbitrage to take place. You're sort of saying, you know, if the price really goes too high, then people are going to come in and and create DAI and sell it into the market. And if it goes really too low, people will buy it back in order to, to close out uh, CDPs. But there's no short-term feedback loop. So with a dollar-backed stablecoin, you can go and just take the Tether or whatever, you know, it's a bad example. You can take the GUSD and take it, you know, to the issuer and just get USD back within the same day. And so you have this closed loop. With DAI, they don't have that yet. And I think it's a piece they still need to figure out. But I'm sort of bullish on them as a company because, or a protocol, because they have a lot of mindshare. And from all the conversations we've had with them, they're, they're very smart people. They're very thoughtful. They've thought about this before and they're just figuring solutions out. And so it's sort of, can DAI survive long enough for some of these obvious and, and big problems, which I think are tractable to actually get solved? I want okay. to do a rapid fire round um, on on your opinions for the following. Uh, we do end up, especially if you are, you know, allocating money towards funds, you want to be incredibly focused on, you know, certain scope um, of, of yeah. you know, areas within crypto. But I was curious about some things that um, are not necessarily uh, things you're focusing on, but if you have opinions on them. Um, one, first one being privacy in the space. Um, what are your thoughts on privacy in crypto? I think selective privacy is is inevitable. Um, you you can start thinking of you know privacy of a transaction, and you start hitting up against some pretty hefty uh, and hard set kind of KYC AML uh, anti terrorism type laws. Um, that's going to be a very difficult thing to get around. But when you start thinking of you know the applications of zero knowledge proofs more broadly. Um, that gets very interesting. So for example, can I, in a private manner, um, prove as an insurance company that I'm solvent without ever disclosing to anyone, including an auditor, uh, what my assets actually are? I think that's a really interesting sort of twist on it, which is, you know, it's not about the privacy of transactions, it's the privacy of my in, in, of my data. Um, I think around that, that there's a, an amount of inevitability because it's it's one of the missing pieces on the internet. Um, inevitable is certainly the way to put it. Um, what are your thoughts on NFTs? Uh, fundamentally, just a, a really interesting new architecture. Um, can we make something unique and transferable and, and uh, what's the word, non-fungible um, on the internet, in the digital world? Uh, that's an interesting architecture. Somebody is going to find a really useful use case for that, and it'll take off. I'm still flushing out my thesis for NFTs, but I, I, I want to discuss what I'm thinking um, pretty early right now is it's really interesting that we're seeing companies like uh, Twilio introduce cryptographic signatures mm -hmm. for calls. Um, we see scam likely calls, especially in the US around tax season. And oftentimes, um, you know, you're just like ignoring it and you sometimes pay for a service to eliminate these scam likely calls. But Twilio is actually thinking about um, cryptographically signing them so that you do not receive a call unless, you know, ownership has been proven. And then on the other end, I'm thinking, okay, well, if, you know, people cryptographically signing these things becomes more of a standard, where these cryptographic signatures going to live? And I think NFTs may be a likely candidate. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. So thank you. Of course. And um, the, the third thing I was curious about is how do you think about enterprise solutions? I know Plenty of VCs uh, think it's just a black box. Um, there's really nothing there. It's all PR. And I was curious if you agree with that line of thought, or is there something that we aren't seeing? I think enterprise, uh, where enterprise meets blockchain today is where big data and data science met enterprise in 2013. Um, it was a word that you could use on an earnings call, and that's it. Um, it's sort of inevitable, I think, again. And it'll just happen on a far longer time scale than anyone thinks possible. Um, you, you think of how hard it is to actually rip out database structures, um, Oracle databases, on-prem databases. Cloud has been around for a really long time. And a bunch of big companies, has, of enterprises, have just like not fully migrated to the cloud because it's just so painful. Um, 
we are so early in crypto. I think anyone and anything looking at enterprise is sort of wasting their time, um, probably because it's the only thing you can really raise money for. And, and the consulting gigs are just wonderful in that space right now. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. The consulting gigs are wonderful in that space right now. Absolutely. <laughs> like, you want to make a killing, just go do this. Um, short time. I just don't think it's an interesting thing to be. Right. Um, and the last one, I think this is hilarious. And I've actually had um, investors say this to me, where they're like, oh, we're not looking at layer one or layer two anymore. We're looking at layer three. So I'm curious if one, you know what layer three even is, and two, what your thoughts on layer three are. So the, the sort of jokey answer is, uh, why don't we focus on layer one? Um, my understanding of layer three is that it, it's actually just basically the interoperability layer. So can I interface with something that sits on top of multiple blockchains? Um, and that in itself is, uh, I think, inevitable. Uh, sorry, I keep using that word, but I, I just think it is. Um, it's like, you know, th so then if we rebrand that to interoperability, then we're no longer in like fancy new concept. It's just like old concept rebranded. Um, and it's you know, once upon a time we had computers and we said, well, wouldn't it be cool if computers could talk to each other? And so we created networks and these were all local area networks. And then somebody said, well, what if we had a network of networks, the internet? That that would be really cool. And I think layer three is basically that. Um, you know, what if all the blockchains could talk to each other? I think, of course, that needs to happen at some point. Um, that makes total sense. Um I have no idea. I, I really have no view as to whether that's an investable thesis right now or if it's too early. Uh, so I don't want to say anything dumb on that. My take on your take is that is the best way I've ever heard interoperability explained um, in the context of what happened with Web 2.0. Truly, I think that's an excellent way. If we already had this network, what would a network of networks look like? And then you have the internet. Um, uh, so that was a great rapid fire round. Um, the, uh, I, I kind of want to turn this back to, you know, you as an investor, um, what do you want to see less of in this space or what is your antithesis? I think, and, and this is not at all, you know, personally we'd like to see the opposite, but I think as a space, less money. Um, we saw a lot of money in 2017, 18, and we saw a lot of crap getting built. And there's this view that, oh, it's all good because you know all experimentation is good and it, it moves the industry forward. I don't know if that's true. I think a lot of what we saw was distracting and, and gave the space a bad name and actually held back progress. And so I think we're sort of in this Goldilocks zone right now where prices are kind of stable. There's enough money locked up in VC already that if you're a world-class project, you can go and get funding. Um, and so I think the the match between money and projects is is pretty pretty good right now and i think it's sort of on an even keel and what i would hate to see is more money flooding into the space or another bull run i think we need a period of time to just put heads down and work um and in part just rebuild the reputation um with regards to the outside world and i, I was speaking to one of the early uh, exchange founders a, a guy built one of the early exchanges and he was saying, you know, we've never been able to do any work in a bull run because my engineers are sitting on a million bucks and every day that's moving up or down by a hundred thousand bucks and their salary is a hundred thousand bucks. And so people are leaving the office at five and no one's doing any work. And so you sort of need these periods, not of crashes of despair, but just calm. And I think we've had these in the past and a lot of stuff got built during that time. And I hope we see that again in crypto. Completely. I remember... Uh, especially around the ICO craze when people would raise um, these astronomical amounts, you know, the question was always, you know, was this a raise or was this an exit? And I certainly agree that the bear market is necessary in order to one um, develop, uh, you know, more infrastructure. And then I think two, doubling down on the things that are working and kind of forces people who maybe were, was work, were working on something that are either too early or, you know, didn't have promise to begin with to then take their talents elsewhere to projects that are gaining traction, that are, you know, going somewhere. And I think it overall is just healthier for the space. Um, uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. So I have one more question. My last one is, if you had a request for a product right now, what would it be? I don't have a request for a product. I have a request for more product managers. Um, I used to be a PM. Uh, 
I know a sum total of two high quality PMs in the space, which is insane. Um, we need to not even 10 X that we need to like a hundred X that, um, roughly there should be, you know, for every five to 10 engineers, there should be a good PM. Um, so we need a lot more product managers, I think, to move into the space and, and guys like Richard Burton at Balance and Arjun Hassard at, uh, uh, New Cipher, I think, have, have really been sort of leading lights in this, of really turning things back to users, whether that's the developer or the end customer. What do they want? How should they be thinking about this? Uh, how do you deliver a an experience or a, a sort of technology experience that is not possible without crypto to a user in a way that's sort of frictionless and understandable? Um, I think we need a lot more of that. Absolutely. Steve Lee, who was a former PM at Google, also shares a similar sentiment where people often see BIPs and um, these like Bitcoin improvement proposals that are put out into the wild waiting for peer review. But there isn't really dedicated people that are, you know, bringing it upon themselves to coordinate um, other developers to come and comment um, on a cadence that is predictable and, um, and seeing enough eyes. So sometimes something will go, you know, un- unreviewed for a while. And if you're able to make that more frictionless and able to um, have a process around that, um, it only, you know, helps the ecosystem. So completely agree there. Um, more product managers, I think, um, is certainly a way for us to mature the space. Um, anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, David. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. One more reminder for everyone to check out Consensus, Coindesk's annual event coming up in May. It'll include sessions with Christine Moy, head of JP Morgan's blockchain program, and Brian Armstrong, CEO and co-founder of Coinbase. There will also be a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for over $30,000 in cash prizes. And you'll be able to network with executives, developers, founders, regulators, and investors in the space. To get your tickets today, you can go to consensus2019.com to register. And don't forget to use code TOKEN300 so they know we sent you. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.